Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So I'll be reading the Bible readings for today. So we've got two sets, um, one from Genesis and one from John. So the first reading is from Genesis 1, verse 1 to 5, and then 26 to 31, also in chapter 1. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page one and three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day and then verse 26 to 31 of chapter 1 then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then the second Bible reading is from John 1 uh, verse 1 to 18. And in the Pew Bibles, it's uh, page 1645. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me 
has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. We are, all that to say, we are starting a brand new Bible teaching series here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, uh, called Jesus According to Jesus. Uh, We're going to be thinking through the seven I am statements that we find recorded in the Gospel of John, uh, words from the Lord Jesus' mouth himself about who he is. I don't know if you know, we live in a city, you have friends, family who have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. We speculate about who he is, what was his mission, why did he come, what's he all about. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we're a bit all over the place. And so what we're going to do is listen to Jesus, how he describes himself um, over the next eight weeks or so. Um, And today's a bit of an introduction. The next seven weeks, we're going to be in each of the I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. Um, And you can see some of them listed on that little banner over there. And what I want you to do before we get cracking and I pray and we get into the word today, I want you to turn to the person next to you. You'll notice, this is partly my fault, the sign there is a little bit too long. Uh, And so there's one I am statement that you can't see. Um, So I want you to turn to the person, don't be a Google bore, right? Don't look it up. Have a read of them, and can you work out which of the I am statements of Jesus, can you not, it's there, (laughs) you just can't see it. Have a quick chat to the person next to you. Which of the I am statements of Jesus is, well, a little bit obscured? Go for it. I'll give you 38.5 seconds to have a go and see if you can come up with the one that's not there. Go. Go. Time's up. Okay. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. Oh, that's a weird one. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone know what is the one that's missing? The truth. Yay. Well done. Very good. Anyone else get it? Oh, a few sheepish hands go up. There you go. Robert, you get the lucky door prize today, which is just meeting me at the back door after the gathering today, and we'll have a chat together. Um, Should we pray as we get into God's word this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, and we pray now that by your spirit and through your word, we would uh, hear Jesus, that by your spirit and through your word, we would see Jesus. And by your spirit and through your word, we pray that we would love Jesus. So Father, help us afresh this morning to throw ourselves upon his grace. Father, we pray that we would just see this morning afresh how marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we know, refresh us. And Lord, we do pray that indeed we would all leave here more amazed by Jesus than when we came in before. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are starting this new series uh, in the Gospel according to John, calling it Jesus according to Jesus, as we take a close look at these seven I am statements that are recorded throughout 
John. Now, we usually call it John. We usually call it John's Gospel. We usually call it the Gospel of John. And you'll hear that said all the way through the next couple of months. But if you have your Bible, you'll actually note that in most cases, it's actually the Gospel according to John. That title was given sometime later as manuscripts were put together, but it's been the title of this gospel for pretty much 2,000 years, two millennia. And it signifies something really important, right? That we do not have four different varied stories, but we rather have one gospel story according to four different witnesses, right? Matthew and John, who were eyewitnesses, Mark, who got the story from Peter, and Luke, who investigated all these things and spoke to heaps of eyewitnesses. Over the time as I've been a pastor, in terms of a paid capacity, I've preached different parts of John's gospel before, but I've never done sort of a long series in John's gospel. So I come to this series with great excitement and a little bit of trepidation. Um, all of the books of the Bible, right, all of them are inspired by God, obviously, and they're all really good. Um, you never come, you know, you'll never come up to me and say, oh, Jacko, what's the text for today? And I go, oh, it's actually a bit of a dud. Like, you'll actually never hear me say that because they're all really good, and yet, I don't know if I'm just speaking as a pastor or if you feel this way as well, but there do seem to be in the topography of biblical truth some particular high points. And it always has felt to me as a pastor, as a preacher, that there are three books in particular that, I don't know, are kind of like, pardon the pun, the holy grail for me of the Bible. Um, in terms of preaching. Isaiah, for me, in the Old Testament, Romans, certainly, and then we've got the book of John. The truths we meet in the Gospel according to John are so high and so exalted and so lofty, and at the same time, there's so much in this text that is even beautiful for little children to learn. And there's a saying about the Gospel of John. I'm sure it's a saying about the whole Bible, and it's been referenced, no doubt, for other things. But I came across it this week about the Gospel of John. Here it comes. This is from St. Augustine. John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Isn't that lovely? Um, So think about that. Children waiting, right? Zero depth entry. I was just at Moonta Bay uh, recently, right, where the the water just seems to be about this deep for about 400 kilometers, right? It's so good for parents. My kids just go, off you go, kids, and they just wade out, zero depth entry, safe as anything, right? There's ground for children to learn here, and yet there are depths in the Gospel of John that, well, even the elephants and the giants of the faith could swim. On the one hand, it's a very simple book, amazingly simple, and and how many people in evangelism have thought, let's use the Gospel of John, let's hand out a little tract with John in it, because immediately in John's Gospel you meet Jesus. Even if you've never studied the original languages, you know that some of the easiest Greek of all time appears in the Gospel of John, and for someone like me whose Greek is a little bit rusty, it was really nice to open it up in recent times and go, oh, I can do this, it was really nice. It's amazingly simple, and yet at the same time, we have unfathomably deep truth. Truths here that have occupied the greatest minds in the church through millennia. We're introduced in this book to the great mysteries of the faith. So if it seems like to you as your pastor that I'm really excited to start this book, I am. I'm really excited. Can you tell? And you're sitting there, and you're already bored, right? 
and you're at least, can I at least think like, well, Jacko's excited, so maybe I'll listen. Like, can you just do that for me? Yeah? Reminds me of this great anecdote that I heard once. I don't know, um, I don't know if it's one of those stories that's not really true, but if it, it really ought to be true, right? Benjamin Franklin, the founding father of the United States, wasn't a Christian, wasn't a Bible-believing Christian by any stretch, but he loved to hear the great revivalist preacher and evangelist, George Whitfield, preach. Someone once said to him, why do, you, why do you go to hear George Whitfield preach all the time? You don't believe anything he says. And Franklin replied, I know, but he does. Huh. Something in the authority with which Whitfield preached, which will not be matched this morning, that drew this skeptic in like Benjamin Franklin. This man believes that heaven and hell, life and death, perishing and flourishing, hang in the balance with this world so people can at least listen. The great reformed theologian Francis Turretin once said this, in the Christian religion there are two questions above all others which are difficult. Um, Turretin, he was an absolute genius, right? Um, And he found only two things that were difficult. the rest of us, I think, probably have more than two things in our lives that we find difficult, but he only had two things because he was amazing. Um, the first thing that he found difficult was the unity of the three persons in the one essence in the Trinity, and the other concerns the union of the two natures in the one person in the incarnation. And we'll be introduced to these two themes as we come to this gospel, these two great mysteries, the Trinity and the incarnation. We'll try to plumb the depths, however failingly, of these two doctrines, the Trinity and the Incarnation, as we encounter Jesus' I am statements. It's interesting, isn't it, for someone of Tartan's calibre to say that those were the two great truths, and then as we are introduced to them in the Gospel of John, I think it says something. We're going to be stretched, we'll be challenged, but we'll also be greatly helped. The more we know, because the more we know God, the more we can worship him. Those two things, head and heart, doctrine and affection, doxology and orthodoxy, do not pull those two things apart. Don't go to a church that pits one against the other. If, there is, if we are to be truly deep feeling people, we also need to be truly deep thinking people. There's a lot of shortcuts, right, to religious emotions. But if you want worship that is experiential, that that hits you in your senses and, and is effective in the best way, there's no shortcut around real, authentic faith. Real faith has to go through truth. And at the same time, the truth that we have in John's gospel is certainly not simply there to make us, I don't know, heady people pat ourselves on the back and walk out of here and think, I'm just so glad that we can be smart evangelical Christians. Isn't that great? No. Robust theology is what makes true worship possible. It's also what makes true faith possible. One of the things I love about John's gospel as well, one of the things I love about John's gospel is he gives us the purpose statement for his book right up the front. We don't have to scramble around and kind of go, why did John write this gospel? Why did he put it all together? What was he trying to accomplish? He very helpfully and famously gives us the purpose to why he's writing. 
So turn, if you would, and I know we haven't got even near John chapter 1 yet, but turn to the other end of the gospel according to John, to John chapter 20. This does count as part of the sermon, by the way, and I know the clock's ticking. But turn to John chapter 20, the very end of the book, John 20, verses 30 and 31. We have a bit of an epilogue in chapter 21. We'll get to that after Easter. But if you come to chapter 20, John says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs. We're going to find that the Gospel of John is partly um, arranged around seven signs, these signs that Jesus does. And John says, well, I didn't give you all of the signs, obviously. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's strong evidence, right, that this book of John was written for the purpose of evangelism, primarily to reach Jewish people with the good news of Jesus. We, we think because it has all of these amazing Old Testament connections and allusions through it, that it would sort of presume a bit of an understanding of the Old Testament in order to get the full depth out. He's addressing Jews probably in the diaspora, perhaps Gentiles, people of the nations who've turned to Christ or turned to embrace Judaism. That's the purpose statement, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Just really interesting, you can contrast that purpose statement with another purpose statement that John gives in one of his other letters. So John writes the Gospel, but he also writes 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. So if you go to the end of your Bible, to 1 John, you can see that John likes to do this helpful thing where he tells us what he's writing for. So John chapter, 1 John 5.13, we compare it to the purpose statement we just read. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. If you're familiar with John's writing, with his letters, and with this gospel, you know there's heaps of familiarity and similarities, right? The language of beginning and light and life and faith and word. There's similar vocabulary. But we see a different purpose, right? First, John says, I'm writing thing, this to those who already believe so that you would have confidence. And then he gives in First John a number of signs that you could look for that sort of make you have confidence that you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. How do you know you're really in Christ? John, by contrast, the gospel, he's writing that you might believe, not those who believe, but that you might believe. And then by believing, you would have life in his name. Now, obviously, we're all gathered here this morning, many of us, most of us, probably are in the category of believing in Jesus, yeah? But that doesn't mean you can check out because John's written this gospel so that the audience in particular, with, to his particular audience at the time, but also by extension to anyone who would come along and read his gospel down the years. And we listen to it so that afresh we'd be strengthened and challenged again and again, be caused to put our faith afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ and to know this Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. In other, in other words... The overarching aim of the gospel, according to John, is that we would believe the long-awaited Messiah, the divine Son of God, is Jesus, and that by believing in him, we would have life, eternal life, now and forever, in his name. Not just who is Jesus, 
But who is the Christ and, and can you introduce him to me? Do you know who he is? Prove it to me. That's what John's gospel is trying to answer. That's the introduction. Welcome to John. Um, I want you to come back with, to John chapter 1. And I know Izzy just read for us the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And you might be expecting me to work our way through the first 18 verses of the first chapter of John. But that seemed a little bit too adventurous to me. So we're just going to do the first two verses. Yeah? Um, just two. This will set us up for the series. Here's the first two verses of the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The first 18 verses, you can see them marked out in your Bible pretty clearly, form what they call the prologue. Not strictly speaking a preface, not a kind of just introduction, or a, but rather it's called a prologue, right? Not merely to provide introductory remarks or background material, but to introduce to us, just as a musical prologue might, if you go and see a, a musical or an opera, that bit they play at the beginning, where you kind of hear sounds and instruments that are going to introduce you to what's going to come as the musical or opera plays out. This is what John's doing. He's introducing us to themes and ideas and sounds and images that will be fully thrashed out as the gospel gets going. That's what John's doing. We're introduced in the first 18 verses to big ideas of the book, right? You see words like light and life and being children of God and being born and being sons and glory and word. We're introduced to the rejection of Jesus, the testimony of John the Baptist, his glory, Jesus' grace and his truth. And these first two verses are striking. Not only lofty theology, but beautiful poetry. And if it's not poetry, Far out, it's close to poetry, or at least what I know of poetry. Let me, let me read, this is with a bit of trepidation, let me read these two verses, these first two verses in the Greek for you, right? I know you, you all came here, right, Sunday morning going, would someone just read me some ancient Greek? <laughs> Guess what? Your dreams are about to come true, yeah? Oh, yeah. I know most of us don't know Greek, but listen, listen to a few of the big words. Not big words, but really important words. There's words like arche, which means beginning. There's logos, which means word. Um, and there's words like theos, theology, means God. Just listen, right? Here's, your dream is about to come true. En arche, ein chologos, kai chologos, ein proston theon. Kai theos ein hologos, hutos ein arche proston theon. Do you hear it? There's a rhythm to it. Even just hearing it, right? Wed once, you can hear it. It's like walking up a staircase and then down a staircase, right? That's if you track with those Greek words, the three ones, arche, logos, theos. You, you go through these two verses, right? And you go beginning, word, word, God. And then you go down the staircase, right? God, word, word, beginning. It's parallelism. John's giving us lofty theology in this beautiful poetic form. By the way, I have no elaborate outline for us this morning. Sorry to disappoint you. Um, I don't have three points that all start with the same letter. 
What I want us to do this morning is just simply walk through verses 1 and 2 and hopefully by God's Spirit we'll just be caused to worship. You ask, Jacko, what's the application? Now, a good sermon, I know, should have application, right? You know, and sometimes the application is, I don't know, after a sermon, you should just go, go home and call your parents. Another application is, I don't know, go and have a date night with your spouse. Other applications are maybe connect back with the Lord through reading his word, maybe pray some more, share your faith. They're all good applications, right? There are also times, just like this morning, where the application is just know Jesus. To know Jesus. And you say, Jacko, but yeah, I know, I, I know Jesus. But do you know? Do you really know Jesus? You know, sometimes we're really quick to say, okay, okay, all right, I've got that. You know, I've got all that stuff in theology. Now give me the application. What do I need to do? We are, you know, what are the how-to steps? You know, we're very practical, pragmatic Adelaide people. Just, okay, Jacko, tell me what, what do I have to do with this tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning? Give me the three points. Just give me, like, just one. Sometimes the thing God wants us to do is just sit back and look at Jesus and marvel. It's amazing, actually, how amazement can be applicable to your life in a hundred different ways. It's not in my notes. This is dangerous. But I was reading John yesterday and doing some study on it, and I was just blown away by the fact that Jesus would come into the world for a wretch like me. And I was moved, right? I was, I was you know, last week I said, you know, we've got to calm up a bit. I was calmed up to the max, to the point where I actually had to walk the block just to kind of chill out. Like, I was just like, Jesus came for me. Like, that was me. We come with all sorts of things and we want to know how to live for Jesus. And, but I just want this morning for us to take a breath and get to know Jesus. That's what we're going to find in this gospel. And that's what we find in the first verse of John chapter 1. Have a look at the first words of the first verse. In the beginning was the word, enarchaeinologos. The first thing that ought to grab our attention is that phrase, in the beginning. If you know your Bibles even a little bit, that's going to give you immediate echoes, right, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every Jew, right, would have been familiar with those words. Just like almost every Christian, right, who reads their Bible a little bit would be familiar that the Bible begins with those words. Page one, verse one. If I were to give you, here's a little test. Don't show the images just yet, Fiona, by the way. Um, If I were to give you some opening lines of some famous novels, I bet you would hear these words and immediately go, yeah, I know which book that is, right? Um, that's the book we're talking about. So here's a, here's a test, right? Here's, here's the first line of a book. Ready? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Anyone know the book? Tale of Far out, you guys are clever. Tale of Two Cities. Here's another one. How um, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anyone know that one? Lots of blank stares. That's Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. There's one for the year to read. Anyway, how about this one? Um, It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Anyone know that one? 1984. Yeah, pertinent to our times, right? I think every second human being has read 1984 
given the pandemic and all the restrictions that have been placed on us. Let's come back. Um, how about this one? Adele knew this one right away. It's a truth, universally acknowledged, that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. What, 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 she, what is it? Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. Um, Adele knew that, not because that was me, um, because it was um, Pride and Prejudice. One more, one more, one more, okay. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, there you go. Well done, everyone who got those, again, no lucky door prizes today. When, when you come to this book, right, in the beginning, just like for those who grew up on Star Wars, hearing the phrase, may the force be with you, right? You hear that and you get transported to a galaxy far, far away. Um, so it is when you come to this book in the beginning. First book of the Bible in Hebrew is called, we call it Genesis. In Hebrew, it's called, the word is Bershit, which is the first word of the Bible. Bershit, bala, elohim, achshayim, vet, haretz. There you go. There's, there's some Hebrew for you. Um, in the beginning, God created. And of course, they would have heard that and they, and they would have, in the, you know, there wouldn't have been a book in the old days. It would have been a scroll and you open the scroll and the first word you see at the top of the scroll is Bershit. In the beginning, beginning. You would expect, right, especially for a good Jew listening to this, in the beginning sounds really familiar. In the beginning, God, because that's how Genesis begins. The first thing we learn about God in the Bible is that he is. Even before we're introduced to the God is the creator, we're introduced to the God who is God, the God who is there. The theological term for this attribute is the aseity of God, which means his self-existence. His self-satisfiedness in himself. We are introduced to the God who is, who always is, who always has been and always will be. At the beginning of time, there was God. Before there was time, there was God. He is eternal. He is the beginning, God. But John puts a twist on Genesis 1.1. Instead of meeting theos, which is the word for God, we're introduced to the word logos, which is the Greek word for word. This is how in the Greek translation of Genesis it begins. Enarche eperistin ho theos. In the beginning God created. Here's how the Greek in John 1.1 starts. Enarche en hologos. Very deliberately, same structure. Instead of meeting God, he introduces us to the word. What did John mean by that term? It can be translated as word or speech or conversation. It's a whole school of thought, right? The Stoics in the Greco-Roman world thought of the Logos as the rationale between everything that exists and the way everything works in the world. And John certainly would have been familiar with those Greco-Roman ideas, but so his assumption, but his assumptions come more from Old Testament. He clearly has in mind the story of Genesis. What is Genesis say, after in the beginning, God, he created. And in John's gospel, we're introduced to the God who speaks. In, in the, the world, into, we're introduced to life, commands for life. We're introduced to light and darkness. And John gives us all these themes. Just in Genesis, God creates the world with a word as he's, there's light and darkness and stars and everything. 
So John picks up these things. Verse 4 of John chapter 1, In him was life, the light was the light of the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness. It's very deliberately pulling his gospel, pulling into his gospel, right? The, the conceptual world of Genesis. Genesis introduces us to the God who's always been. We meet in the very first pages of the Bible, a being without beginning. And now John introduces us to the same, but this one he calls the Word. So we meet this important doctrine, the pre-existence of the Word. Now again, I want you to look really carefully at your Bibles in front of you. Look at the difference. You don't have to know the original languages to see this. Look at the differences in the verbs between verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 3, uh, which we'll, we kind of get to when we speak about creation, all things were made through him. It's the word became, right? All things became through him. Without him was not anything became that's become. Or here it's translated as made. So became is the verb. But look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. It doesn't say in the beginning became the word. Creation had a being, a beginning. It became. There was a time when creation was not, and then it became. There was not a time when the word was not. So it doesn't say the word became in the beginning, but rather in the beginning was the word. There was never a when when the word was not. So whatever you can say about the eternality of God in Genesis, that he's always been, you can say the same thing about the word in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. And, next phrase, the word was with God, and the word was with God. So, so you think, but maybe in that first phrase, in the beginning was the word, maybe John was just giving us a, a kind of synonym for God. Now, there's a lot of names for God that we find in the Old Testament, um, and sometimes he's called king, sometimes he's father. Uh, maybe we're just getting another kind of name for God that John's kind of dropping here. That's interesting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now we have in the beginning, there was the word. The word is just, you know, I don't know, interchangeable. You can swap it out. Um, but no, that's not what John is saying. He's not giving us a synonym. You know, you say tomato, I say tomato. No, he's not doing that. We see the two words are not interchangeable. The word and God exist, and we don't. We don't yet know how this mystery is going to work out. But somehow in this very second phrase of the gospel, we see they exist as two persons. One is not the other. There's a distinction. For it says that the word was with God, or some people translate it, the word was toward God, um, implying accompaniment or side-by-sidement or relationship. Verse 2 makes this clear. He was in the beginning with God. We'll come to this as we think about creation um, through this series. You know, but God spoke. And you say... Where is the word in Genesis? You know, is he read out part of Genesis chapter 1? Where's the word in the creation account of Genesis? Where's the word? How come we don't meet the logos in Genesis chapter 1 if John tells us in the beginning was the logos? Well, think about it. Of course we meet the logos in Genesis chapter 1 in the account of creation because God spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. 
Let there be seed-bearing plants, and there were seed-bearing plants. Let there be water, and there was water. Let there be sky, and there was sky. Or as I learned from VeggieTales, God just went, and there it was. By his speech, creation came into being. So to use the later theological language, we are introduced here in already just the second little clause of John's Gospel that there has existed from all eternity two subsistences, two somethings, the God, God and the Word. They both were there in the beginning. Okay, so now you, you have all this. Keep in mind the audience, the original audience to which John is speaking, right? These are Jews or converts to Judaism who were steeped to the nth degree in monotheism. There is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you probably know it. Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema. And now within a few words in the Gospel of John, like circuits are firing, minds are being exploded, kapow, boom, bam, like they're, how does this work? Because I thought in the beginning was God, and you now tell us in the beginning is the Word. Maybe that's another, just the, the same kind of thing, but now you said there was, that the Word was God? And now we take one step further, even further into rarefied air, where we read, and the Word was God. Okay, if you're tracking with me, you know, you thought, okay, maybe the word is just a synonym for God because of the second clause. But no, the word was with God, and there's some distinction there. But then maybe you think, well, maybe this is like, I don't know, maybe the word is like an emanation from God. I don't know, like a, a, a primordial ooze out of God or some kind of emanation. Maybe, maybe the word is like a demigod. Oh, sorry, like Moana. I love Moana, but um, great movie, terrible theology, right? Great movie, terrible theology. Good songs, bad theology. You know, he's some kind of like lesser being that existed eternally with God. You know, something like, again, like an oozing out of God, something sort of less than God who was with God, some sort of principle of God who was there. But John quickly dispels that notion. He tells us, no, the word that was with God is also the word that was God. What does that phrase mean? How could we understand theos? I don't know. Some of us might have friends, um, colleagues, who are Jehovah's Witness. Uh, maybe we, maybe recently, I don't know, someone knocked on your door wanting to talk to you from the JWs. I don't know about me, but I feel like the JWs are doing like a blitz across Adelaide right now. I feel like everywhere I go, there's like a little stand and a couple of people, lovely looking people, just waiting there. Um, like on every corner, they're on every plaza, like they're all over the place, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses, right, they have a translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. Um, very famously, or maybe infamously, they translate this as a God. So not the word was God, but the word was a God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. That's how they translate it. Because they are, I don't know, like modern-day Aryans who deny the full deity of Jesus, 
believing that he's not equal to the Father. Um, and if you ever talk to someone from the JWs, right, they'll, they'll tell you, and some of them will come really well equipped with a little bit of Greek, and they'll tell you that the word God at the end of verse 1 is an indefinite noun, right? Now, we're getting into dangerous territory here, right? Grammar is good for you, okay? Grammar, all the teachers are going, yes. And everyone else is going, I'd never learned grammar. I'm that young that they dropped that from the curriculum, right? Um, and you're going, oh, just bear with me, right? Just, I'm taking you back to like year four, right? Here we go. A bit of gra- grammar is good for you, right? They believe that, like, um, that the word theos at this point is what they call an indefinite noun, right? So we have the word the, right, as our definite article in English. So the pulpit, like historically where people have preached from, the pulpit, um, a or an, um, is called an indefinite article, right? A, I never wear a watch, and you go, you sh- probably should wear a watch, Jacko. Um, a watch, a cup, um, things like that. In Greek, right, you don't have an indefinite. You either have an article or you, know, you don't have an article. So you could see, um, and you could open up your Greek, and someone will come into your home from the JWs, and, and they might show that it says, you know, and the word was God, and they would say, and look, there's no definite article there. There was a definite article earlier when it said the word was with God. It used the word tone theon. That's the in Greek. That's the definite article, but there's no article here. So shouldn't we translate it a God? Maybe John is just saying that the word was with God, he's eternal, but the word was a God, a sort of lesser kind of being. Well, if you ever, like maybe you'll go home this afternoon and you hear the ding dong and there'll be a JW, right, at your door and you'll go, praise the Lord, I'm ready for this. Maybe you can remember these points that I'm saying. Maybe you can, I heard a sermon about 30 minutes ago, but I can't remember anything he said, which is totally fine. But, um, but maybe you remember this, and you can go and check. Here's some stats. 282 times in the New Testament we have the word theos without the definite article. So, so don't think, oh, this is the only time that it ever happens. It happens 282 times. And only 16 of those occasions did the Jehovah's Witness Bible translate it as a God, God, or gods, or something like that. So they're certainly not consistent with their principle. Also, if you look at chapter 1, the word theos, God, occurs eight times in this chapter, verse 1, 2, 6, 12, 13, 18, and has the article only twice. And yet six times the Jehovah's Witness translated as God, capital G. So the principle they want to tell you exists in verse 1. They don't even hold through the opening verses of the book. Now, the grammar lesson's almost over. Um, There's heaps of complicated terminology in Greek grammar that we won't get into, but but it is. You can look it up and you can read it for yourself. I can give you a textbook if you really want to get into it. Um, It's simply the case that when you have nouns like this used together with I am verbs in this position, they often don't receive the definite article. And in fact, there's probably really deliberate reasons why John structures things the way he does. Because theos at the end of verse one has a slightly different nuance to theos referred to earlier in verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, thinking there of God the Father, and the word was God. First God, definite article, Second, theos, no definite article. 
That doesn't mean it should be translated a God, but it means that God is trying to explain to his audience, who, by the way, would know Greek much better than me or anyone else in the room, he's trying to say that there's God and he's the Father, and then the Word is God, but he's not the Father. He's saying, in other words, what God was, the Word was. Yeah, does that make sense? Everyone's going, did you have to go through all that stuff before? He's basically just helping us to see that what God was, the Word was. And here's the wonderful thing as we go through John's Gospel over the next seven weeks. When we see Jesus, we will see the Father. Yeah? Not the same person, but all that the Father is, all that he desires, all that he longs for, his character in the Word. See Jesus See the Father. All the authority that the Father has, the Son brings. And so when we hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door, I am the true vine, we are, we're seeing God, hearing God, not just a Moana-style demigod. We're seeing the one who with a word brought you into existence. It's quite remarkable. John is stating very carefully and very deliberately, though we haven't met Jesus yet in the gospel, that the word was God, but that this word is to be distinguished from the God we all know as the Father. So again, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And when we get down to verse 14, notice the Word became flesh. Verse 1, verse 14, we have coming to us the mystery of the incarnation, but also the mystery of the Trinity. So the Word didn't become God. The Word was God. The Word didn't come into existence, but the Word did become flesh. The Word took on this new state of being as a man. And it's therefore absolutely no coincidence that John bookends his gospel, the beginning and the end, with this bold declaration of the full deity of the Word. John chapter 1, which we've just been studying this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you think, to the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, what happens? Jesus has just died for the sins of the world. He's triumphantly, three days later, risen from the grave. His body, he's got a full-on body again. And he's got a scar on his side. He's got holes in his hands. And he's there in the upper room with his disciples. And Thomas comes up and says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not believing this until I can jam my fist up his side and stick my fingers in the holes of his hands. And Jesus, I'm not Jesus, he walks along and just says, go for it. And so Thomas comes up and, I don't know, puts his fist in the scar where Jesus was stabbed on the cross and he, a bit gross, right, but he puts his fingers in the hand. And what does Thomas do? He falls down and says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Bookending the gospel is this clear, definitive, unambiguous statement of the deity of Christ, the Son of God. Let's tie things together. Um, 
Here's what I want you to notice as we close. Like a good beginning to any great story, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is building tension. Notice the divine word doesn't yet have a name in our passage. We can presume that John's gospel audience probably would have known something of these gospel stories already, um, anticipating where John's going to go with his story. Um, But just imagine, right? Just imagine if... You're reading this and somehow you can transport yourself back to a place where you've kind of never encountered this before. You've never opened John chapter 1 before. And maybe you're here this morning and that's you. You've never come across this part of God's word. You have this lofty language, this poetic language, this incredibly majestic theology and you don't know who this is. And you say, who is the word? The word that is from the very beginning, the word who is with God and yet the word that was God. You know, we're so familiar with this part of God's word. We hear it read every Christmas time. We know it so well. We're just so familiar. There's this familiar cadence to it. And so we're scarcely struck anymore by the scandal and the exhilaration of these verses. Because wouldn't you find yourself on the edge of your seat? wow, if this is true, how do I hear from this word? Don't you want to know this word? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could be known by this word? And what if the story continued? After knowing the pre-existent word is distinguished from God and yet fully God, how does this work out when we hear this word who who had never had a beginning? The one who never had a time when he was not, the one who is in fact timeless and eternal, what if that word walked among us? This is a Christology from above. What if people saw this word with their very eyes, this this word who was in the beginning? What if you could sit down with this word? What if you could touch this word, smell this word, hear this word? And what if, what if in some astounding way this word became like one of us? Looked like us. Got hungry like us. Took a nap like us. Half of you guys are too young to even know what a nap is, but you know, it's when you get tired and old and you get to about two o'clock in the afternoon, you go, I need to rest. What if the word did that? What if the word felt pain like us? What if this word experienced loneliness, sadness like us? What if the word died like us and yet rose again? Wouldn't you like to meet that word? Wouldn't you like to know that word? And wouldn't you fall, I don't know, I would, I like to think I would, just fall flat on my face before the feet of that word? For the word who is God has another name. And as a good storyteller in this prologue, John is going to build the tension. Who is he? He's been rejected. Who is he? John spoke of him. Who is he? We won't know that until verse 17 when John says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Wow. 
Jesus. The carpenter's son. Jesus of Nazareth. Which you could translate Jesus of like Nowheresville. That Jesus, are you sure? I knew this, I knew Jesus' mum and dad, people would say. I knew his brothers and sisters. I played backyard cricket with him. I knew. I knew who his teacher was. I knew the teacher who helped him with his grammar and his phonics and his reading. That Jesus? That Jesus who walked among us, who lived, who died among us. That Jesus who rose again. That Jesus who reigns that Jesus who is coming again soon. So let's love and sing and wonder for this word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an amazing story, a true story. Again, Father, we're reminded today that this was a story that didn't begin in a womb, in a manger, or simply in a dream in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, but Lord, that began before there were even mangers or millennia, even before there was a beginning. So Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that in these weeks and months, as we look together at the Gospel of John, as we look at Jesus. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we've forgotten, teach us things that we didn't know, and Father, we pray that you would bring to us, rekindle in us, not only a love for, but a worship and a wonder for the Word made flesh. And so we come to you this morning, Christ, true God, true man, the Word who is with God and the Word who is God. Asking that again you will open our minds, expand our hearts to see, hear, love and wonder at the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.